So have you enjoyed the freedom of coming to church these last uh, few weeks? You know, it's, so this, this is my third week since uh, March of 2020, and I have to say, I, it feels like we never left. I certainly have enjoyed that first note every Sunday morning that when Kathy touches the piano and then begins to sing. Um, and then we picked up all those conversations that we had uh, 18 months ago, uh, including the one about the Leafs not making, the play, uh, making it through the first round. I found this teaching, preaching kind of thing a little bit daunting uh, from week to week. Um, this will be uh, my sixth time, but who's counting? Um, you know, and if, if you had the opportunity to do it, you would see the three great benefits. Uh, of course, uh, the greatest benefit is the, uh, the paycheck that you get every time you do it. Um, so, um, but there are two, two really good benefits. Actually, last week, Brian sent me a message, a text message, saying that uh, I had a sound check that I was late for. C-H-E-Q-U-E, and I thought, this is great. Um, so, you know, when you think about it, you get to study um, and th think through some scripture. You get to consider what other people have perhaps uh, spoken about, the, the topic that we're working through, and, and uh, for this next, uh, still another month, uh, about prayer. And, and imagine you're accountable. Uh, as you get up and, and, and do those things, but um, you know, through, the, through the things that God's trying to teach you and, and some practical application in your life. Um, but you, know, you should also uh, be giving consideration that uh, just because maybe you don't come up and do this, it's something that we can each do all the time. Uh, I, I've actually been made myself accountable to my kids as I read and I study, and then I send what I read and study and think through to my kids, and I become accountable to them. The other benefit is uh, how many opportunities, as we study and we pray and we think through these things, how many opportunities we have to speak with other people, you know, and maybe share what it is um, that we're studying or, or uh, contemplating um, and, uh, you know, for me, this week actually had an opportunity to talk to three different people at work. And uh, it was interesting because all three of them are Catholics that left the church when they were old enough to quit. Uh, they all knew the Lord's Prayer, and it was really easy to talk. And uh, I had one guy go out of, out of my office uh, uh, with his hands above his head, you know, thinking this was great. So that opportunity to share the love of Jesus with people who need it. And, uh, you know, we, we visit with those people every day. Anyhow, let's, let's turn to the Lord's Prayer. You know, it's funny, we call it the Lord's Prayer, uh, but it's really Mark's prayer. It's Jonathan's prayer. It's Rob's prayer. It's what Jesus taught us to pray. It's, it's our prayer. Um, you know, I said last week enough times, I'll probably repeat it a few times, that this is all about me. Um, and my wife says that all the time, but um, uh, it's funny how only the women laughed at that one. But, uh, um, so, you know, I, th I think 
that it really is, and that's what Jesus was trying to teach us those 2,000 years ago from that mountainside, that it, it really is all about you, it's all about me. So let's begin by reading that passage once again, um, and we'll read uh, from the NIV, Matthew 6, 5 to 15. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to, to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. You may be thinking, those last two sentences verses are not part of the Lord's Prayer. And they could be a little frightening, so why would you include them in the reading? And that's a good question. And even after including them, I was still asking myself the same question. Jesus, why did you add that at the end of this teaching on prayer? We'll have a few thoughts of that towards the end. I love how Jesus takes the time to teach us about and consider this most important or one of the most important things in our relationship with God. He teaches us about prayer. And he did teach this in such a way that it is about you, it's about me and our approach, it's about our attitude towards prayer and to give us a deeper richer understanding about our relationship with our Father. He begins by making this the point that this is a personal thing as he instructs us to go into the room and close that door and pray. And he says it's not about how many words you pray or how long you pray. Then he makes that important point about the fact that God already knows what we need, what we want before we even ask. So why pray? Jesus wants us to recognize who we are in the Father's eyes and just who his Father is. He is our Heavenly Father. He is holy in all ways, perfect in love, perfectly right. And above all else, God, in his holiness, is worthy of our complete devotion, our submission to him. So let's go into that room once again and put our focus on our Heavenly Father. Consider His greatness, the true nature of His majesty. I love those words from Einar a couple of weeks ago, the true nature of His majesty. You know, we begin to think about just how much He loves us. In all humility, then we consider His holiness to put our trust, to put our hope, our faith, our wants, our needs into his hands. Because of who he is, he deserves yours and my complete devotion. I repeated that three times. 
It's so important. Um, God is holy, and in his holiness, we are encouraged, not forced, but Jesus encourages us, teaches us to submit to the Father. Jesus encouraged us to ask God that his kingdom, God's kingdom, be the prevalent one in our life. To do that, once again, in humility, Jesus suggests that we ask that God's will be done in our lives today, tomorrow, next week, next month. My prayer, your prayer, is that not my will, not my list, not my wants, but God, your will be done in my life. Last week we looked at Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane as he faced the cross and he said, not my will, Father, but yours be done. The, the result of that, a world transformed. When we pray that prayer, God, your will be done in my life, it is a prayer of life transformation. I had a com conversation with a friend uh, this past week, and in that conversation I was reminded of, of my mom's um, charge, uh, my mom's encouragement to me each time I would face any kind of challenge in my life. And, it's likely a familiar verse uh, to many of you. In my mom's words, she would say, Mark, you serve a great God who loves you beyond anything that you will ever understand. And he has great plans for you. And those plans are to prosper you and bring you peace. When you and I listen to these prayer instructions from Jesus, he would have us ask God that his will be done in our life today, and you've got to think that his will, in his will, we fall into those kinds of plans that my mom reminded me of often. And as we do, we're going to see, although these instructions about prayer are all about me and all about you, that the impact is felt by all of those that you come into contact with. And I, I really do believe it becomes all about love. Jesus moves on to reminding us of our provider who knows what we need before we ask. Yeah, Jesus says it's all about you, it's all about me, but it's about your attitude towards God as our provider. Why do we need to ask for so many things? Or is it better just to be thankful for what we have? Is it, is it better to just be content with all that he has given us. That's a bit of a summary of last week, so let's move into this week. Now Jesus moves into what I think are some of the most difficult instructions in these prayers, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. The tough part is not the first part, the tough part's the second part of that instruction. Now, being debt-free sounds really good. I think it is. They say that in Canada, we actually have uh, the highest debt rate in the world. I think uh, we have a $1.70 of debt for every dollar we earn in this country. I'm pretty sure that Jesus wasn't thinking about the Canadian debt uh, situation. But um, I am certain that... Uh, the debt situation that Jesus is talking about is even a greater crisis 
than that of personal financial debt. It's talking about carrying a debt of guilt, a debt of what others would call sin. Our selfishness has resulted in the carrying of a load of debt that we, we call guilt. This guilt in the Western world, at the very least, has resulted in unprecedented loneliness and depression. Think about, did you know that the most used pharmaceuticals in the Western world are antidepressants? You know, a couple of years ago, uh, my 70-year-old cousin made an unsuccessful attempt at his life. And why? In his words, he was carrying a load of guilt that became such a burden that he could no longer carry. He said that he felt that he was not worthy of God's forgiveness. What a terrible lie that comes from the very depths of hell. Jesus instructed us to ask God for forgiveness. Why? God's already forgiven us. We're the ones that need reminding. You see, it is all about me. It's all about you. Remember, he knows what we need before we ask. 1 John 1.9 is a well-known verse. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify from us, from all, all unrighteousness. We can be completely debt-free. The second half of that verse is about us forgiving those who have sinned against us. I'd suggest that there are two parts to that forgiveness. We also can be part of the healing of that burden of guilt that people carry around. It's not always true, but that guilt that others carry is because of things that they may have done to you and I, and vice versa, right? Uh, so your forgiveness is part of the healing process, an outward expression of the unbelievable love that Christ has put in us. So the second part of that forgiving others is God's desire that we carry no bitterness. Another part of the debt that we carry. And it really does weigh us down. Some people carry that kind of debt all their lives. You know, they're bitter towards their parents. They're bitter towards their spouse. They're bitter towards their ex-spouse. They're bitter towards their siblings may even be bitter towards their children or anybody that they work with or people they come into contact with, carrying that kind of bitterness. You know, it, it is, it kills you every day. It's destroying the joy that we can have in our lives. Jesus instructs us to pray that we would become part of the forgiveness, forgive others and relieve our hearts of that debt. Why? Because this, ser this Sermon of the on the Mount begins with Jesus' expression of his desire for the crowd that day, which included you and me. He began with what we call the Beatitudes, in which Jesus teaches us about the different areas of our lives that will bring us happiness, that whole thing of blessed or, or happy are. I, I like to call the Beatitudes the instruction that will lead us to be blessed. Actually, that's not really true. I, like, I actually like this one. I like 
the, the turning that blessed into a carefree, joyful life. And it's something that we carry today. Jesus didn't speak that day to instruct them about what was going to happen in eternity. He was speaking about what was going to happen in their lives today and into eternity. You know, that's why Jesus came to this earth. He, he, he preached that Sermon on the Mount. That's why he went to the cross. That's why he wants to forgive you, and that's why he also wants you to forgive others, that you and I will have a joyful, carefree life. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, from the evil one. You know, you can't read the Bible and not believe in the existence of evil. Satan is a fact. Uh, Matthew records Jesus' interaction with the devil in the wilderness and how he tempted Jesus. The devil tempted Jesus with food because he was hungry, power because the devil thought that the power was his to give, and he tempted him to prove that he, Jesus, was in fact the Son of God. Jesus' words here in verse 13 are ones of recent human experience for him. I don't know whether I, I, I hadn't thought of that, but here you go. That's, that's a thought. It was something that he had recently experienced. So, for the full story, you know, you go back to Matthew 4, and Jesus was tempted in those three areas that we, in fact, are commonly tempted by. You know, our basic necessities. Uh, how about power? And what about our ego? We are tempted every day by our desire to get what we want when we want it. You know, I'm, I'm pretty sure that God is not, or sorry, that Jesus is not suggesting that God would tempt us. But he certainly allows us to be dragged away and tempted by our evil desire, as James puts it in James 1.14. So our prayer would be that God lead us away in his power from temptation, in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, Paul makes it clear that God would never allow us to be tempted beyond what we can bear. So it's kind of still all about you. It's all about me. Jesus never suggests that we will not be tempted, nor that he would eliminate temptation. I think these two, temptation and evil, live together very well. So it's, it's worth a good look here at evil. And evil enters the, uh, the human race with an act of disobedience as Adam and Eve eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Evil, if you look at the definitions, you will most likely see that evil is a profound, sorry, <laughs> is a profound wickedness. You know, we often probably think of evil as something we see in a horror movie. <laughs> That's evil. So I spent a couple of weeks, uh, about four, five years ago, looking at evil in Scripture. What a great way to spend a couple of weeks, eh? Uh, looking at evil. So the, uh, you, you, as, as you look and th through Scripture at evil, it looks a little different as we move on. Uh, so I, I just want to share a few thoughts from, from the notes from five years ago. 
Um, yep, the first act of evil uh, we see is when Cain killed his brother Abel. But it's interesting to read what God's warning to him was just before that happened. He says, if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Quickly after this event, we read about Noah. You only have to turn the page and you're already to Noah. And, and, uh, you know, and God saw then that, this is the words, every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. And what was that evil? We really don't see what that evil was, but it says that God saw that all people had corrupted their ways. And we don't have to leave Genesis, turn the page a little bit further, and you'll run into Sodom and Gomorrah. The story in Genesis alludes to what is commonly thought as the evil of Sodom. But we begin to get a real different sense of evil when we read the sin of Sodom as recorded in Ezekiel 16.49. And this is where I began to wonder what this evil was that Jesus was suggested we be delivered from. That verse tells us that the evil of Sodom was found in the fact that they were arrogant, overfed, unconcerned, and they didn't help the poor and needy. Moving on to Isaiah. Isaiah speaks to the evil of the Israelites. I mean, if you read 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, you'll, you'll get the evil, good, evil, good, evil, good, all the way through it. But in Isaiah 58, um, he speaks to a different kind of evil. He, he speaks about religious piety, which is followed by actions that reflect anything but religious piety. If you want a great read, one of my favorites, Isaiah 58. I, I really want to read the whole chapter, but in the interest of time, I'm just going to glance through a few more references. I really wanted to understand what it meant when Jesus was instructed me to be delivered from evil. It became clear as I studied that it was not some horrible creature. It became clear that he wanted me to understand that I need to be delivered from the evil that I was most capable of. So let me suggest a few more scriptures. You may remember Micah 6.8 was actually up here on the wall for quite some time. He showed you, O oh man, what is good. Have a read through Micah and see why he was calling the people to good. You will note that there is no terrible, hideous evil happening here. It is simply baseless religion followed by self-centered action. There's so many other references to look at, but I hope you're beginning to see the point that I saw five years ago. Did you know there are three references to evil in the Sermon on the Mount that we're in the midst of? And they all refer to those that were listening to him that day, his followers. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? And what is that gift that Jesus is suggesting that we ask for here? To lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. Jesus instructs us to ask God to deliver us from the evil one, from Satan. Make no mistake, our Father in heaven has all the power if we ask 
to deliver us from the evil one. Of course, in his great love, he still gives us choice to follow our own evil desires. When Jesus said that we should pray for deliverance from evil, it was not deliverance from really bad people. It was deliverance from our own desires and our own inherent selfishness. Don't expect God to remove temptation. He will empower you to make the right choices to resist temptation. But you still have the power, because he loves you so much, to choose right from wrong. You can choose faithfulness, generosity, and love over selfishness and greed. And Jesus makes it clear in this instruction that God will help if we ask. In my, my, my words, that prayer would be, help me, God, to make the wise choices today. Choices that fit only through those filter, that filter of faithfulness, love, and generosity in Christ. And keep Satan far from me. Let's look at those last couple of verses now. Do you find scripture confusing sometimes? If not, read these two verses. I wrote some of these thoughts one Easter Sunday or Easter Saturday morning. I was wondering that day what it was that Jesus was doing on on that Saturday 2000 years ago. He died on the cross on Friday and he rose again on Sunday, but what did he do on Saturday? I like to think that he spent that time defeating sin, death, and hell. I actually like to go Hollywood a little bit here and think that You know, I can see Christ in all his glory, battling the devil in the depths of hell, and in one final swipe of his sword, he defeated evil once and for all. Of course, it's not Hollywood. Uh, Jesus did defeat sin, death, Satan, and hell uh, with his death on the cross. He rose again on Sunday, and and, and, and in that, he offers us life with him here on this earth now, and into eternity. So why does he say, if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins? You know, if you have thoughts, I'd I'd really like for you to send them to me or catch me after the service and set me straight. But 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Perhaps For me, one of the most famous of verses about salvation is Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. These are not contradicting what Jesus is saying. If there was something required of us that God would forgive us and offer us salvation, then the cross is wasted. Jesus died taking all of our sin to the cross and rose again, offering us life, and there is nothing we can do that will cleanse us from our sin. Why then did Jesus say that we must forgive to be forgiven? I wonder if the answer is not back again in those verses where it says, forgive as we forgive. Bitterness is a killer. When we carry unforgiveness in our hearts, I wonder if it does not do two things. The first is that we cannot forgive ourselves. Taking back to my cousin. God may have forgiven us, but we cannot accept it because we cannot comprehend 
the depths of his love that he has for us. And in that love, he forgives us entirely. Carrying bitterness makes it hard or maybe impossible to really receive forgiveness and forgive ourselves. Secondly, bitterness keeps us from extending forgiveness. Jesus went to the cross to defeat sin. He did it for us to give us forgiveness and to demonstrate the kind of love and forgiveness he wants us to extend to others. It is not that God has not forgiven or will not forgive us in our unforgiveness. Because in Christ he has. It is that we cannot accept the forgiveness or extend it which is what keeps us from that real heaven on earth that Jesus has been talking about since the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. A joyful... (laughs) A a joyful, carefree life is yours and mine. And this is just one more part of enjoying it. Accept the forgiveness that God has given for you in Christ, for me in Christ, and then in turn and still in Christ, extend it, that forgiveness to all others. So you see at the end of this prayer, it is all about you, and it is all about me. Jesus so desperately wants us to have that blessed, that happy, that joyful, carefree life. When we know who the Father is, know his love, recognize his holiness, and in all humility submit to him, When we can begin to pray, we will desire his will more than ours have reign in our lives. We will be thankful for his provision and live content with what he provides. We will learn to forgive others, and as we do, we'll better understand and accept more readily the forgiveness he has for us. We will know that evil does exist, but in our submission to his will, to his power, In our life, we can and will resist temptation. As you and I pray this Lord's Prayer, and we make it Mark's prayer, and we make it John's prayer, and we make it Becky's prayer, you know, we will see the things that we want to pray about, the lists that we have in our life become even more real. Because as we pray this prayer, we will find ourselves loving others more than we ever have before. As his will, his reign, his power, his love transforms our lives. And although it's all about me and it's all about you, it really is all about others. It's all about your spouse. It's all about your kids, your neighbors, your coworkers, those in the community in need and those around the world. Am I aiming too high? Hmm. I don't think so. Remember, it's not me teaching. These are the words of Jesus. Postscript on the when. So, Jesus doesn't really talk about when. When do we pray? Jesus, uh, and uh, I, I like this little verse. Paul says to the Thessalonians, pray continually. If we do pray continually in the way in which Jesus taught us, we will be transformed moment by moment, word by word, action by action, reaction by reaction. Imagine that. Oh, what about the prayer list? Well, here's one more little piece of scripture. I like this one. 
I will use the word uh, that I have heard it uh, uh, repeated to me over my lifetime, where first, in 1 Peter 5, 7, it says, cast all your cares, all of them, on him because he cares for you. And he really does. Let's pray. I'm going to ask if we, we're just going to put the Lord's Prayer up on the screen and let's pray together. So if you want to stand with me and we'll pray. We'll add that little benediction at the end, which uh, came in later trans, uh, translations. Or, uh, and uh, So let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. celebrate communion on the first Sunday of each month, and this is the first Sunday of October. So we will uh, resume that practice uh, here, uh, and uh, we will, there are various names for communion. We can call it remembering the Lord. We can call it the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, uh, the Breaking of Bread. There are many names, but it all means the same thing. Uh, those of us who know the Lord take the bread uh, and in the taking of it and eating of it, we remember his broken body. And uh, then we take the cup, and in the drinking of that cup, we remember his blood that was shed for us and that uh, was the atoning sacrifice for our sins. It all started uh, here in Matthew 26. Uh, and I just wanted to say a word to those who are viewing online at this moment. Uh, you could pause your, uh, your recording at this point and go get a little piece of bread and a little cup of wine or grape juice and then rejoin us and celebrate uh, communion together in your home. But we'll resume here. It all started in Matthew 26, uh, what we call the Last Supper. And it says, this is just before Jesus goes to the cross. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread and after a blessing, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is to be shed on behalf of many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in the Father's kingdom. <clears throat> I was noticing when he took the bread, there were four things that he did. It says he took some bread, number one. After a blessing, number two, he broke it, number three, and he gave it to the disciples. Now, we go forward in time a few days, basically three days, and there's a story that happens in Luke 24, one of my favorite pictures and renditions of the story in all of the Bible, 
of Jesus' resurrection. And it's the story of two disciples who were walking on the road to Emmaus. And they're walking along and they're joined by a stranger, quote unquote, to them. Uh, and they don't recognize the stranger, and he begins talking to them, and he asked them, why are you so sad? And they said, well, you know, and they explained the, the death of the one that they had put their hope in and didn't look good now. And, uh, and he, uh, he begins to talk to them and share scripture with them. And it says, as they walked along the road, uh, he, was, he was telling them things out of the Old Testament about the Messiah, uh, basically about himself. And, uh, and it was, uh, I would love to have heard that little sermon, um, for sure. But uh, then we get to a point in the Luke 24 narrative here, where it says, uh, and they approached the village where these two individuals were going, and he acted as though he would go farther, and they urged him, they were good, hospitable folk, they urged him, saying, stay with us, for it is getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. And he went in to stay with them. And it came about when they had reclined at table, listen carefully, they had reclined at table with them, he, he reclined with them, he took the bread, blessed it, and breaking it, he began giving it to them. Do you remember the four things in Matthew 26? Took the bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to them. Same sequence. They didn't know who this stranger was. But the next words just shock me. I love it. And their eyes were opened. And they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They, they're staring at each other. And he's gone. But don't worry, they would see him again soon, back in Jerusalem. You know, remembering opens eyes. Remembering the Lord opens our eyes. And there's nothing that we as Christians need more than the gift of eyes freshly opened to who Jesus is, as it says here, recognizing him, seeing things that we hadn't seen perhaps ever, <clears throat> or maybe just hadn't seen for a while. Becky referred earlier to the two songs we sang at the beginning of the service and how, in a sense, she didn't use these words, but she saw things she hadn't seen for a while and it touched her heart. We all need that, folks. And you know, uh, when we break bread, when we take the, the bread and we remember his, his suffering and his broken body, when we take the cup and we remember his blood shed for us, his life poured out, it, it serves to open eyes. It's not an empty ritual that you do hundreds of times. Let it be fresh, real, and as if it were the first time this morning. I pray for you and for me the gift of freshly opened eyes and recognition of Jesus and who he is as we remember him this morning. Remember how much he loves you. Maybe that's what your eyes need to be freshly opened to this morning. Remember how, who you are and how much you need a savior. We need to be humbled in that way often. Remember his return, remember his, his words, Re remember, uh, remember just every, everything you can about him. It could, be, uh, it could be 80 different things getting remembered and re freshly realized this morning with the 80 different people who are, who are here in this room or whatever the number is. So um, 
the way we do this, we'll sing, we'll, we will be led in a, a song of worship uh, by the worship team as we break bread together. We'll do it all together. Each of you would have received one of these little uh, cups as you came in. If you haven't, you could pop your hand up and an usher could get one to you. Uh, but how it works is there are two tabs. You pull the first tab off and there will be a little wafer there, uh, which is the bread, and you will take that and eat that. And then you pull another tab and it opens up the, the, the cavity there where the juice is and you take that and you just do it one after the other and we will do it all together. But as you do it, remember how, take, take it almost as if he's handing it to you. He took the bread, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to them. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we're just glad to be here in this moment. We've heard from the Lord's Prayer. We've heard many truths. We've been fed in our souls. Now, Lord, we pray that you would freshly open our eyes. God the Father, thank you for the gift of your Son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. God the Son, Lord Jesus, thank you for the gift of your life, the gift of your body, the gift of your blood, cleansing us, washing us. God the Holy Spirit, thank you for the gift of your voice, speaking to us, calling us, speaking to us of the love of God, of the beauty of the Savior. We remember you this morning for your glory. Amen. <laughs>